Well, I hope um, you all know how blessed we are to have Blake Boyce as our music pastor and uh, does such a great job leading us every Sunday and his team that he's put together and trained and um, just so blessed, so encouraged that we get to, to sing those songs and, and uh, he just draws us. Um, God uses Blake and his team to draw us into to his presence and uh, really prepare our hearts to hear him speak to us through his word. And so uh, with that in mind, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 11. We just uh, got back into our study of this great gospel last week with a doozy of a, of a passage, uh, the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And this morning, we're going to finish up this chapter by looking at the response of the religious leaders in Jerusalem uh, to this great miracle that Jesus performed. And uh, because the passage is briefer than normal, uh, I want to go ahead and read it as we begin. John chapter 11, starting in verse 47. John records, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. And if if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples." Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to, re- was to report it so that they might seize him. Father God, we thank you for your word And we thank you for preserving it for us to study. And uh, we know that uh, we need your spirit, the same spirit that uh, inspired John to write this text. We need that spirit, your spirit, to illuminate our minds to understand this text and to make application of it in our hearts and in our lives. And so please, Lord, we pray that your word would be understandable to, to us this morning, would be applicable to us, and that, Lord, we would be more conformed to your son, Jesus. That's our desire, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, I've entitled this text and this sermon, The Sacrificial Lamb. Now, that's a term I'm sure you're familiar with in our culture. We use it metaphorically uh, to refer to someone or something that is exploited or surrendered or even killed for the common good or the benefit of someone or something else. According to the Cambridge Dictionary, 
A sacrificial lamb is, quote, someone or something that is harmed or destroyed in order to prevent other people or things from being harmed or destroyed. For example, in South America, I read that when farmers are escorting cattle across a river that they suspect uh, of having piranhas, they will sometimes sacrifice one cow upstream before letting the herd, the rest of the herd, enter the water. Well, we know the, the concept of the sacrificial lamb is based on the teaching of the Bible. In fact, it was originally introduced to us, this idea, in the very first book of the Bible, in the account of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. You'll remember how God tested Abraham and, uh, by commanding him to offer his beloved son Isaac as a burnt offering on Mount Moriah. And this was a true test of, of Abraham's faith. Listen to the way this story is is described or recorded by Moses in Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then this is the the point in verse 13. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of of his son. Don't miss that very simple phrase, in the place of his son. As Abraham told his son that God would provide a lamb for the burnt offering, he provided a lamb to die in the place of Isaac as a substitute for Isaac. So we see this idea of a sacrificial and substitutionary lamb right at the very beginning of the Bible, and it was later on forever burned into the psyche of every Israelite on the night that they were delivered from bondage to Egypt in Exodus chapter 12. We remember how the last of the ten plagues that God used to execute judgment on the gods of Egypt was the death of the firstborn. And through Moses and Aaron, God commanded every Jewish family to take this unblemished lamb and kill it and wipe its blood over the doorposts of the house. And so when the death angel came that night to strike dead all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, if he saw lamb's blood on the doorpost, he he passed over that house and spared the firstborn. And as you know, on that historic night, God ordained that every year the Jews were to celebrate the Passover, so they would never, ever forget the miraculous release from slavery to the Egyptians. Well, not long after the the Israelites had escaped 
Egypt into the wilderness, God met with Moses on Mount Sinai and established the laws by which he wanted them to live. And, and included in these laws was the sacrificial system, whereby the people of Israel were to regularly sacrifice burnt offerings before God to atone for or to pay for their sins. You can see this in the book of Leviticus. And so all this Old Testament imagery involving a, a blood sacrifice to atone for sin culminated in the New Testament through what great event? The crucifixion of God's Son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb that He provided, right, to die in our place, to be sacrificed in our place. And providentially, Jesus was killed during the annual Passover celebration at the very same time that the sacrificial lambs were being slaughtered as a covering for the nation of sin. And I think God's point was very simple. He didn't want the, 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 the connection, this symbolic connection between the, the substitutionary sacrificial lamb of the Old Testament um, to be missed with the death of his son Jesus in the New Testament. In fact, when uh, Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming, he pointed directly to him and he said what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so more than any other gospel writer, that was John chapter 1 verse 29 by the way, and so more than any other gospel writer, Jesus or John emphasized the the worldwide implications of Jesus' life and death. In other words, Jesus didn't come to earth to live and die just for the Jewish people, but for all the people of the world. And and John has made that point from the very beginning. In in chapter 1, he talks about how there was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. The world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but... As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So even though the nation of Israel rejected him, uh, there were others that he had chosen to be his children outside the nation of of Israel, i.e. the Gentiles, and they became his children as well. John 3.16, for God so loved the, the Jews that he gave his only begotten son. Is that what it says? No, for God so loved the the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, we, John pointed out a, or gave a great illustration of the worldwide impact of Jesus' life and death when, he, when Jesus met with a Samaritan woman, right, at the well. And uh, not only did she come to know Christ, but a lot of people in her whole town, in her town did. In John chapter 4, It says that many of the Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified that he told me all the things I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Like, guess what? Our, Our Jewish... You know, neighbors were saying, ah, you guys are half-breeds. You guys are a bunch of compromisers. You're not going to be part of God's salvation for the nation of Israel. And they're saying, no, the Messiah didn't just come to save the Jews. He came to save the world. Chapter 10, verse 16, 
Jesus said this. He said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, talking about the nation of Israel. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Again, a, a reference there to the, the, the uh, bringing in of the Gentiles along with the Jews. And then one other verse. I just love John 12, verse 32. We'll see this shortly. Um, Jesus said, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw the Jews to myself. Is that what it says? No, we'll draw all men to myself. And so here at the end of John 11, John took the opportunity to expand on this whole idea of Jesus' death uh, really impacting or uh, having implications for the entire world. And he, he really capitalizes on one of the most ironic statements ever made about Jesus to show that he died as a substitute in the place of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And here in verses 47 to to 57, John related how the religious leaders of Israel responded to uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And and, and again, this was the seventh and final miracle that, that John included in his gospel to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus truly was and is God's son. And many of those who witnessed this miracle firsthand placed their faith in him as the Messiah. Verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. However, the hard-hearted Jewish religious leaders, instead of confirming Christ's deity, this miracle confirming Christ's deity, it really served only to confirm their decision to have what they considered to be this dangerous, false Messiah killed. Which, by the way, this came as no surprise to Jesus. Tim Keller has written a great little book called Encounters with Jesus, and this is what he said about the raising of Lazarus. He said that Jesus knew that if he raised Lazarus from the dead, the religious establishment would try to kill him. And so he knew the only way to bring Lazarus out of the grave was to put himself into the grave. He knew the only way to interrupt Lazarus' funeral was to summon his own funeral. If he was going to save us from death, he was going to have to go to the cross and bear the judgment that we deserve. And so Jesus knew that bringing Lazarus back to to life would cost him his life, but that was a price that he was willing to pay to save us from our sins. And we said this last week that, that really the death and resurrection of Lazarus was just a preview of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and again, ironically, the, the response to that miracle from the most powerful spiritual leader in Israel at the time was a profound prophecy of how in his death Jesus would serve as a sacrificial lamb. And so in the midst of of plotting Christ's death, the Sanhedrin inadvertently provided one of the clearest uh, prophecies in the Bible of the sacrificial substitutionary nature of Christ's death. And so I've just broken up John's account here of the the Sanhedrin's small-minded, self-serving conspiracy to kill Jesus into into five parts. We we see the quandary, the prophecy, the commentary, the sanctuary, and the expectancy. Let's look first of all at the quandary that the Sanhedrin found themselves in. Verse 47, therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, "What what are we doing? 
For this man is performing many signs, and if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. (coughs) So in response to the new intel that they had received from those who had witnessed Jesus' miracle, latest miracle in Bethany, the Sanhedrin called this emergency meeting to discuss how to put an end to this miracle-working menace named Jesus. Now, that, that word council there, um, I think, is a reference to the Sanhedrin, which was the highest judicial court in Israel, functioned a lot like our Supreme Court. And uh, the high priest presided over this 70-member council, and the majority of the members were Sadducees, many of which were chief priests, and the, the Pharisees were the influential minority party, and as you know, the, the Pharisees and The Sadducees had a number of conflicting theological views, uh, especially in regards to the resurrection. Um, In fact, Paul used this brilliantly uh, to take advantage uh, of this group to escape his trial before the Sanhedrin. Uh, You might want to turn with me over to Acts chapter 23. This is interesting. I love this Acts chapter 23 verse 6. This is when Paul was facing trial in front of the Sanhedrin, and and in verse 6, it says, but perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out on the council, brethren, I'm a Pharisee and a son of a Pharisee. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge, acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. That's just an example, (coughs) excuse me, not just of Paul's shrewdness, but of the animosity, right, uh, that the the Sadducees and the Pharisees had and and oftentimes how they had a hard time getting along, kind of like the the Democrats and the Republicans, right, in our country, uh, they would get sideways with one another, and man, they'd have to almost have guards pull them apart. And so Paul very shrewdly kind of pulls the, the pin and the grenade and just rolls it in there, right? And next thing you know, they're all fighting over it, and he just kind of quietly uh, leaves or gets pulled out of there. Well, we see here in the Gospels, however, that their mutual hatred... The, the Sadducees and the, the Pharisees, um, for Jesus, caused them to lay aside their differences and to join forces against what they consider to be a common enemy. They both recognized that the more Jesus' power and influence continued to spread, uh, the more their own power and influence was threatened. And as, as his popularity increased, their authority diminished. And so their dilemma was that, that nothing up to this point that they had done to to discredit Jesus had worked. The more miracles he performed, the more people believed in him, and and they were concerned that if if, if he wasn't stopped, then then everyone would end up believing in him. And so something had to be done, and and it had to be done fast because 
Zealous Jewish pilgrims from all over the world were already pouring into Jerusalem for the annual Passover celebration. <clears throat> and if the previous Passovers were any indication, if, if Jesus was allowed to teach the masses or to do miracles, they might be stirred up into some messianic frenzy and try to make him king. And if that were to happen, the Romans would perceive that as a threat to their rule and also uh, a disruption of the social order, which the Sanhedrin was partially responsible to. So as you can imagine, Rome did not tolerate any kind of insurrection. And so the Sanhedrin's fear was that the Romans might sweep in and, and, and remove them from power and take away all the, the rights and freedoms of the Jews, which, by the way, happened um, 40 years from this point, 40 years later, in AD 70, the Roman armies roared into Jerusalem and just laid waste to completely destroy the city in response to a Jewish uprising. And we know ultimately that was God's judgment on the nation of Israel, on Jerusalem for killing his son and destroying the Messiah. Well, ultimately, it's, it's, you don't have to be a political genius, right, or analyst to to, to see here that the members of the Sanhedrin were seeking to protect their own self-interests. In fact, uh, one commentator, Bruce Milne, says it well. He said, the overriding concern was not national, but personal. Such developments would destroy the status quo by which they, the Sanhedrin, had power and privilege within the state that simply could not be permitted. Thus, the guardians of the sacred traditions of Israel were reduced to the level of political functionaries. The primary issue was not one of principle, but expediency. Right had become equated with the avoidance of trouble and the preservation of their hold on power. The cause of the living God, the glory of the age-old revelation from the patriarchs to the Red Sea and Mount Sinai was all mortgaged in one sorry, impassioned hour to save their own political skins. He says this, though, in closing. He says, but through it all, these men were the unwitting instruments of a mighty divine purpose. In other words, they were just playing out God's plan. <clears throat> it should remind us of what Peter said in Acts chapter 2 in that great sermon he preached at Pentecost when he confronted the, the Israelites for killing uh, the Messiah. He said, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, you remember how he raised Lazarus from the dead. You remember that. He said, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So who killed Jesus? The Jews? Yes. Who else killed Jesus? God killed Jesus. Pretty radical stuff. Well, that's the quandary. How about the prophecy? Notice verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is an expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation, and that the whole nation not perish. Now, Caiaphas was the ruling high priest from A.D. 18 until A.D. 36. He played a leading role uh, along with Pontius Pilate, who was the governor, uh, the Roman governor of Judea at the time of Christ's trial and, and crucifixion. They both kind of partnered together, partners in crime, if you will. 
Uh, Caiaphas' father-in-law was named Annas. Uh, he had previously served as the high priest from AD 7 to AD 14, and he still maintained some influence uh, over the office even after his tenure was over. We'll see that in John 18 when Jesus was arrested. They took him first to Annas' house before they ever took him to, to Caiaphas' house. And so here's Caiaphas sitting there presiding over this 70-member council, and he's just listening to the other members of the Sanhedrin discuss what to do about Jesus. And he, he finally grew impatient with their ignorance, and he interrupted them, and he proposed a, a, a radical, ruthless solution. He basically said, listen, guys, this is an easy problem to fix. Let's just kill the guy. Let's just kill the guy. It's better for one man to die than our entire nation to be slaughtered in a potential war with the Romans. And so he was suggesting that Jesus be a, what? Sacrificial lamb who would be killed in order to prevent a lot of other people from being killed. And, and, and in his mind, Caiaphas simply meant that Jesus should be executed in order to spare their positions and their nation from Roman reprisals. However, Caiaphas, as we can clearly see, used sacrificial and substitutionary language and unwittingly prophesied that Jesus would die in the place of as a substitute for sinners. This is what we call the, the doctrine of the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ, or the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. This is a foundational doctrine of the Christian faith. This is something you need to know. You need to understand very clearly because your salvation hinges on the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. It's a truth that's taught in both the Old and New Testaments. Uh, let me just give you some examples. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in our place as our substitute. Romans 8, 32. God did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. And so God did not spare his son, but he delivered him over as a sacrificial lamb so that we would be spared. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul uses very similar language as Caiaphas here. He says, And we know that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that he, we who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf, so we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, God treated Jesus as if he had lived our lives and, 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 and committed all of our sin, sin, even though he was without sin. And then he treats us as if we lived Jesus' perfect life and we were without sin. 2 verse 24, Peter says, He himself, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross, for by his wounds we were healed. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just, that's him, for the unjust, that's us, so that he might bring us to God. So hopefully you can see all the, the, the substitutionary concept idea there in those verses. I still haven't read the clearest passage in all of the Bible 
uh, about the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Anybody know where that is? Thank you, Justin Tufts. Isaiah 53. You go there with me quickly. You've got to see this. If you didn't know the answer to that, you need to know the answer to that question. Isaiah chapter 53. And here we have Isaiah prophesying about this suffering servant who is going to come. And you tell me if this is not the clearest description of the life and ministry, or I should say the life and death of Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. So far, sound like Jesus? You bet. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. In other words, somebody else deserved to be punished. But he was punished in their place. His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was with a rich man in his death. In other words, he was hung between two thieves, right? And he was buried in a borrowed grave. Joseph Arimathea, a wealthy man, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Now here's where it gets really, really intense and and really radical. But the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Did you see that? The Bible says that that it pleased God to offer up his son as a sacrificial lamb, to crush his son in our place. To put him to grief so that we would not have to grieve. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will provide the booty, divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Again, the clearest prophecy, the clearest description of the substitutionary atonement of the death of Christ in the place of sinners like you and like me. Let's look at the commentary. The commentary back in John chapter 11, verse 51. 
Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now, John, man, he just, he just could not pass up this opportunity to comment on the irony of Caiaphas's counsel to the Sanhedrin. Here's the high priest who was originally the one through whom God prophesied to the nation of Israel, but here we have a defunct high priest, if you will, a man who's not qualified to be in the office of high priest, just by the sheer uh, suggestion that he makes here. Um, he's, it was all about expediency. He was, he, he was not a man of integrity. He was a man of expediency. And yet God used him anyway to foretell the sacrificial substitutionary death of Jesus. And so here we have a great example of what Caiaphas meant for evil, God meant for good. Caiaphas had a wicked, evil heart, and yet God providentially directed his choice of words to express the heart of God and to to really explain God's glorious plan of salvation. And it reminds me of what the disciples prayed in Acts chapter 4, when uh, Peter and John were arrested by the Sanhedrin and were told by the Sanhedrin, listen, we killed Jesus and we don't want to hear about him anymore. Stop talking about Jesus. And this is how they prayed in Acts chapter 4, verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And so here was Caiaphas, right, being one of those people that God was just using in many ways like a pawn, right, to accomplish his purpose. And so John went on here to add his divinely inspired explanation that Jesus would die not only for the Jews, but for all of God's children from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that phrase Every tribe, tongue, and nation comes from the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And the context is this, the, the elders and, 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 uh, and all the people that are in heaven in Revelation chapter 5 are before, and they bow down, it says, before the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus Christ. So here we got the Lamb imagery here in heaven each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, and this is a song they're singing to Jesus, who's pictured as a lamb sitting on a throne. It says, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so again, back in John 11, I think this is a veiled reference, excuse me, to the church. That, that God's household, the, the family of God, would ultimately be made up not just of Jews, but Jews and Gentiles, joined together in one body through Christ's death. Paul talks about it a lot in Ephesians chapter 2. But that's, I think, where John was going with this in his commentary, uh, talking about the future of the church. Well, look at verse 53. So from the day on, from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So the resurrection of Lazarus was the last straw, 
for the Jewish religious leaders. They, they, had, they had put up enough with this guy, and, and they had been wanting to kill him for some time now, and that was obviously public knowledge, and we've seen this uh, in chapter 5, in chapter 7, in chapter 8, and in chapter 10, where they were plotting to kill him, and, and the crowds knew that they were plotting to kill him. In fact, they actually, in a public forum, uh, were so incensed by what they considered blasphemy, they picked up stones and wanted to stone him on the spot, and yet he escaped. Well, from this point on, they were determined to kill him no matter what. And they were just waiting for the right time to apprehend him. Now, just bring up one other little point here, that Jesus wasn't arrested to be tried. He was arrested to be killed. It's a great injustice, is it not? Uh, They had already made up their mind. They had already convicted him without even a trial. Well, let's look at the sanctuary, number four, the sanctuary. And by sanctuary, I mean a a place of refuge, a place of safety. Verse 54, therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So I'm sure word came to Jesus uh, regarding the Sanhedrin's plot to kill him. And so he withdrew to a place called Ephraim, which was a remote village about 12 to 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem, which would keep him out of harm's way until it was time for him to attend. The Passover was, was just really just a, uh, within a week away here. He was going to be back in Jerusalem. But it was also, I think, close enough, it mentions the wilderness here, that uh, if he had to make a, a quick getaway uh, into the wilderness, he could. I like what one commentator said. He said, in this sleepy hamlet of Ephraim, He could elude the Sanhedrin, yet remain in easy walking range of Jerusalem for his dramatic last days there. And that brings us to the last point here, the expectancy. The expectancy. Look at verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So this is a huge factor here, and John's wanting to make sure we get this connection that this, this, this unfolding drama here uh, includes the, the, the Jewish pilgrims converging on Jerusalem for Passover, which was the biggest holiday of the year for the Jews. And they were coming early to give themselves enough time to, to perform the required rites of purification. And, and uh, we know that, that this is the third and final Passover mentioned in John. Uh, we, the first one was mentioned in John chapter 2, then second one is in John chapter 6, and this is the final uh, time it's mentioned, the Passover is mentioned, this is going to be the last Passover that Jesus celebrated. Look at verse 56. So they were seeking for Jesus, these pilgrims, and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? And so everyone came with this this expectation, this anticipation. They were, they were looking for Jesus and they were discussing with one another whether or not he would dare show his face knowing that he would most likely get arrested and that there was a, a price on his head and, and he, was a, he was kind of a wanted outlaw. And the conversations may have gone something like this as they crowded into the temple area. Well, man, I've, I've never seen so many guards before. Have you? Man, they're really like doubling up here, and they're, they're ready for him. And you think he's going to come? No, I don't, I don't think he'll chance it. I think he's coming. I don't think he'd miss this thing for the world. 
I mean, I'll never forget the, the first time he came to Passover and he came in, man, and he, he ran out those people from the, remember, he, he ran out the, uh, the, 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 the people selling the animals along with all the money changers. Man, I, I wonder what he's going to do this time. And so the crowd's curiosity was definitely aroused and there was this growing sense that this would be an unforgettable Passover. Verse 57, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. And so the religious leaders weren't dumb. They took advantage of the people's peaked interest and they made sure they had informants stationed all over the city and so that they could report, and so they kind of put, a, put an APB, all points bulletin out for Jesus, right? If anyone knows the whereabouts of Jesus, you need to report it to us. I don't think they did this, but it would be like putting up wanted signs, right, with Jesus' face all over, plastering it all over uh, the city of Jerusalem and, 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 and uh, say, hey, listen, this guy wanted, dead or alive, kind of thing. And so, as you can see, the stage is set here for Jesus' triumphal entry and his final public appeal to the nation of Israel, which we'll see in the next chapter here, chapter 12. But in the meantime, just listen to the thoughts of Bruce Milne again. He said, As the Jewish pilgrims prepare to sacrifice the Passover lamb in commemoration of God's gracious liberation from slavery in Egypt, so God's own true lamb is prepared and ready at the Father's summons to offer himself in bloody sacrifice for the sins of the world. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who suffered the wrath of God as our substitute and was killed so we wouldn't have to be killed. He died in our place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing imagery of the sacrificial lamb. This is not something that we made up. This is something that you revealed to us from the very beginning of time. Um, We thank you for just how clear you've made it in the scriptures that while Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin may have thought that they came up with this great idea to, to offer Jesus as this sacrificial lamb, they had no idea that ultimately you were the one that had already ordained before time began that your son would be that sacrificial lamb. And we're grateful for that, Father. I pray that this morning, if there's anyone here that has never truly grasped the the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, Lord, that you would just flood their their mind with the truth and it would just overwhelm them and that you would uh, help them embrace that truth and to truly understand and get it, Lord, and apply it to their lives, Lord, that they would be truly saved and they would would be able to live with the joy and the hope and the peace uh, of, of knowing that their sin has been paid for and that they will spend eternity with you in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.